Hello, everyone. Yeah, good morning. Hello. How are you? Yeah. Uh, listen, before we go any further, I, I, I want us to take a moment and, and recognize how blessed we are. And I want you to know this about whether you've been a member of this congregation for years or whether you're visiting here for the first time today. I am, um, over the last few weeks, I'm very convinced that God is doing great things among us. And you, you see it. And just a few things that, well, one of the things that I would want to mention, and I've seen this on more than one occasion, is the way that God is drawing generations of people every age together. We saw that a few weeks ago at the Encounter with God service on Sunday night where people gathered around tables and they communed with one another of all ages, from all backgrounds. And this weekend at the men's retreat, we had five generations present. You know, that's the kind of thing you get in the newspaper. Somebody comes and takes your photograph when you have five generations in a family. And what God is saying is he is saying, I, I, don't worry, church, what you've been through. Because all the things that you've been through and all the things that you're going to go through, I was your God then, I will be your God now, and I will be your God forever. He will take us through that. And what each generation can do, what all of us can do, is call one another to faithfulness. You know, if you weren't a part of these things, uh, I could say we missed your presence and maybe you couldn't be there. But you know what? You're going to benefit from it. Everybody is going to benefit from all of the good things that go on here. And if you are looking for a church home, I want you to know that this is a good church home. And we would love for you to be a part of this fellowship here. But more importantly than that, I really hope that you don't let a day go by that you don't Know the joy of what it means to be a child of our God. And I hope that is more important than being a member of this congregation, is being a disciple of Jesus Christ and knowing what peace and joy and purpose that can give you. Would you pray with me? Father, our God, we acknowledge you as our Lord and Creator. And we ask that you would give us that perspective that we can see through the difficulties of today and see the promises of eternity. And Father, would you guide us now as we gather around your word that we will have a greater vision of how you have exalted Jesus to your right hand and made him King of kings and Lord of lords. And let that dispel all worry and all fear and teach us to join hands with one another to combine in purposes and in unity that glorify you so that we might be a blessing in this world that you still very much love and are working to redeem and save. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's um, continue in our conversations on the truth that in a very real way we have a monarch we have a king Jesus Christ who rules in this world what I'd like to do let's just take about 20 seconds and you turn to the people next to you and I want you to think about 
what sort of royal language, what sort of king's speech do we, do we use in our songs, in our scripture, in our conversations? How many words? Look for the words and phrases. I'll time you. Just turn to each other. It'll be interesting to see what you come up with. You've got 20 seconds. What kind of royal language do we use? Go. We'll say that's 20 seconds. I, wonder, I, I would love to hear sometime what you came up with, and I wonder if you got some of the ones that, uh, I'm going to get one right here. What would we come up with? God. God is a very royal term, and the kings even like to use that term. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be interested. You can send those to me or just share those. But I wonder, did you get terms like majesty, authority, throne, reign, sovereign, how about phrases like above all, on high? Even words like kingdom, of course, but sometimes we use that in a very non-royal way. How about dominion? Did you think of that one? Did anyone come up with that one? That's a royal term. How about prince of peace, titles like that? Honor and glory even are royal terms. I'm just curious if you thought of some of those and maybe some others, but the point I want us to make is, is that we have all of these terms among us. They're in our songs. They're in Scripture. But the fact of the matter is, I think this is true of most everyone here. Anyone who this doesn't apply to would certainly be the exception. If you're an American, you have almost no experience with royalty. None of us, if you've grown up in America, you've not grown up in a nation where we have a monarchy, where we have a king. And, we can, and I wonder what that does to the way that we hear and the way that we use that royal language. We, we don't want to do away with the royal language. It's very biblical. It's very appropriate. But you can use the biblical words and have a different understanding and not truly appreciate their significance. In fact, royal language might mean nothing more to us than what we hear of in fairy tales. And, and, and that's not going to be very healthy. I, I first noticed this years ago. I was a graduate student. And we were in the commons where the graduate students all came together. And it's sort of like those Old Testament passages where you hear about the, the men of the city gates, the rabbis, and they were exchanging all of their wisdom and um, there wasn't a lot of wisdom, but we felt like we were. And, the, and I was just sitting back listening to the smartest guys in the room. And they were talking about the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ and the meaning of passages in Revelation. And this conversation went on and on and on, and it really got nowhere in their debate. They might as well have been playing tic-tac-toe. Nobody wins. Finally, one of our, our, uh, our fellow students who's South African and knows what it means to live under some kind of monarchy, turns around with his cup of tea in hand. He did. And he said, 
The problem is you Americans don't know what it means to have a king. My first reaction was, that's right. My second reaction was, he's right. He's absolutely right. To use royal language without the context, why, it, it, it runs the risk of, of changing the way we understand Christ's identity. In America, kings are just celebrities. We call people like Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson kings. The king of rock and roll and the king of pop. In America, we use king to mean the best. You know, when, when you, I'm telling you, when you go to the uh, grocery store, you need to kneel down because Budweiser is the king of beers, and there's a, you're in a royal presence there. I didn't know it was the king. And uh, the point is, we use king to mean the best at something. He's the king of the court. He's the king of this. We use that to mean that it is great, but we don't acknowledge it as authority. If our royal language is limited to saying nice and respectful things about Jesus just saying, Jesus, of all the saviors, you're the best savior there is, we don't understand what it means to call him king. Even if we're very sincere, we may lose out. And that's the thing. I don't want to, I'm not trying to scold us. I'm saying, let's not miss out. Because there's so much here in the gospel. And I want us to grasp the full identity of who Jesus is. Otherwise, all of the honor, all of the glory that we bestow on Jesus could be motivated not by an understanding of his spiritual authority, of his real authority, but it might just be our way of saying, Lord, we're we're somewhat indebted to you because of what you've done to us, and, and we're obligated to show you all this formal respect. Thank you for taking the punishment that we deserved, and we're so glad that that got your father off of our backs because we, we, were, we really didn't know what to do. And what happens is our praise and our honor and our glory becomes a matter of obligation rather than the kind of discipleship and obedience that it should become. I mean, if we're just saying, thank you, Mr. Jesus, every Sunday because what would we do otherwise... We've got a very thin gospel. And I wonder, what prevents us from turning our, our, you know, to moving towards a disciplined obedience and loyalty rather than just an obligated formal respect? There are some things that do this that we need to be aware of. You need to know these things so that we can step back and get the fuller picture. We have among us some reduced gospels. And by reduced, what I mean is the full-bodiedness, the full boldness, completeness of the gospel is sometimes boiled down and reduced because that's what we like to do in the scientific, enlightened West. We like to reduce things down. How many times have you been online? And, and, and I'll go ahead and own it. This is one of my pet peeves. And you go to read an article, and at the bottom of your browser, there will be tons of links, and it's always five things you need to know about this, seven things you need to know about that, ten things that could kill you in your home right now, you know, 15 things that women say that they like about men, 10 things that men say they hate about women. You know, on and on it goes. All of these little lists. Because everybody wants to reduce it down to a few bullet points. That's nothing new. 
That's been going on for, for at least 200 years, if not more. And what it's done to the gospel is it has reduced the gospel down to a few bullet points. Now, I know, we might say, but what's so bad about that? That makes it easier to comprehend, doesn't it? It might be good for the beginning of a discussion. But if I boiled a cup of coffee down to a stain and said, Here, chemically this is coffee, would you like a drink? You're not going to be satisfied with that. Uh, we need to understand that the gospel is more than just condensed astronaut meals, okay? It has a richness and a totality to it that we don't dare lose out on any of it. Dallas Willard, a few years ago, uh, he's an author, he authored books, uh, he elaborates on this in his book, Divine Conspiracy. He said that what we have when we have reduced gospels is we have uh, a lot of different aberrations of the gospel that can occur. He noted that... uh, There has been a growing heresy, is what he calls it, in the last few, in the last 100 years, let's say, where it's widely accepted that humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. Now, there's truth in this because remember, it's a reduction of the gospel, okay? It's distilled gospel. But not all of the gospel is there. Is it true that we need Christ as Savior? Why, yes. But if you reduce it down to that, and it's just a transaction, you're going to miss something. Willard says that creates the kind of situation or the impression where it is accepted. He says where it is quite reasonable that we can be what he calls a vampire Christian. What he means by that is he says, one in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little bit of your blood, please. But I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? And then he asked the question, is that really acceptable to Jesus? I don't know that any of us would ever dare take such an approach or say that consciously. But when we reduce the gospel down to, look, You need to be saved. You need Jesus' blood. He took care of it. You just accept it and move on. That's what we're doing. We're reducing it down to the point of absurdity. Because I like what he continues to say. This is not on the screen. Willard says, when you stop to think about it, how could one actually trust Jesus for forgiveness of sins while not trusting him for much more than that? You can't trust him without believing that he was right about everything and that he alone has the key to every aspect of our lives here on earth. Willard goes on to describe that we have created a gospel that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but sometimes we've promoted it as the gospel of sin management and that Jesus is just a sacrifice to take care of our sin problem. Sometimes you have to call the experts in. If you want to work on your, uh, your automobile or something around your house, you might call in a mechanic. You might come in and call in somebody who's had, who has great skills. But if I'm taking my car to the mechanic and I'm saying, listen, can you fix this? It's misfiring a few times. And the, and the mechanic says, yes, I'll get on to that. By the, by the way, while we're talking about it, I, I, I want to talk about uh, you know, the, the way that, that, that you behave in your household. And I want to talk to you about the way that, that, that you conduct yourself professionally. I'm not coming back to that mechanic. 
fix the car, you know, uh, we'll take care of the other. But do we not do the same thing with Jesus when all we're concerned about is treating him as an expert for our sin problem? Jesus, you take care of my sin problem. That's fine. I've got some opinions on the way you're leading your life. We'll get to that later. But just take care of my sin problem. Now, we would never be so rash and bold, and I'm exaggerating, but stop and think. Don't we sometimes reduce things down so that we lose out on the royal language? If Jesus can, if we can trust him for the forgiveness of sins, then we need to be trusting him with the way we live our lives. And we're going to have to move away from a reduced gospel to get that larger picture. As I said, this has been going on for a long, long time. The other extreme of reducing Jesus down to a manager of our sin problem is to reduce Jesus down to a moral teacher. That he's just an enlightened individual who taught a lot of good things. And we would never consciously admit to that. We might know people who believe that. And you need to actually know that the third president of the United States held to that belief. I'm sorry if Thomas Jefferson was one of your heroes. The man accomplished a lot. You know, he's worthy of respect for that. But the fact of the matter is, Jefferson was not convinced that Jesus was trying to tell anyone that he was the Son of God. In fact, some ten years after he completed his term as president, Thomas Jefferson, at his home in Virginia, ordered two Bibles And he took a razor knife and he cut out of them, out of the four Gospels, those portions of the Gospels that he said, this is what Jesus was really all about. And his his filter was to just get the moral teachings of Jesus. To leave out all the miracles, all of the supernatural, unscientific, unenlightened, mysterious stuff, and just boil it down, reduce it down to the moral teaching of Jesus. And what he did in that process was created what some call the Jefferson Bible and what he called the life and morals of Jesus. And all it contains, when he cut those little slips out and pasted them into his album, it just contains the words of Jesus. And it ends with Jesus being put in a tomb. There is no resurrection. But Jefferson was convinced that he was improving on the gospel, and he admitted to John Adams in a letter that he was extracting diamonds from a dunghill. This is an obvious example to us, and it ought to be a sign to us of what happens when you filter out and pull out what you want out of the gospels. And I doubt we would ever be so bold as Jefferson. Not in the church. No, we wouldn't. But we can, even if we don't take a razor to the Bible, we can ignore certain things because they may not fit our view of the gospel. Or we may neglect certain things because we have reduced the gospel down to a formula. Before I move on from Jefferson, let me let someone else from history respond to Jefferson Over 200 years later, C.S. Lewis said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell, 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. Jesus did not leave that open to us, and he did not intend to. That was C.S. Lewis. And I think he said it very well that we need the entire gospel view of things. One of the other reductions of the gospel is to see Jesus as an appeasing sacrifice. Now again, I point out, there is some truth to this. There is much truth to this. Obviously, Scripture shows us that Jesus was a sacrifice. That, there, that like the Lamb of Passover, He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But if all you do is limit Jesus to that, then you have sort of a spiritual dead man walking. He's just the Jesus. Well, at least Jefferson will get Jesus to the tomb in his reduced view of the gospel. For some reduced gospels, Jesus never gets off the cross. He's all, now, the cross is important. The death of Jesus is important. The blood of Jesus is significant. But you have to understand it in the whole scheme of things. You have to understand it in the whole narrative and what's going on. Especially what is to come. But if Jesus is reduced to nothing more than the sacrifice who takes our place... We don't ever really know Jesus. These are reductions. And, they, and, and they're reductions because they emphasize one fact and they neglect or ignore or even reject other important facts and truths about the identity of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus and all of his sacrifice, his crucifixion, his blood are important and truthful. And when you bring them all together, you get a complete picture of who he is. I want to take you now to Acts chapter 2. The first recorded gospel sermon. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And I think it would be fair to title his message, The Identity of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have a title, but the point of Jesus's proclama- or Peter's proclamation is to say, this is who Jesus is. That seems to be the concern in his message. I want to start reading in verse 22. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter's addressing the people of Israel. He says, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was, to carry, was, was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles... You nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he's right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad. My tongue shouts his praise. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. 
But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now Jesus is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us just as you see in here today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Now Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Stop. I know. Our tradition wants us to jump to verse 38. I'm not going to let you do that right now. Because we'll end up with our own reduction of the gospel if we jump to 38 and then throw off all that stuff that we just read. Because it's our tendency sometimes to want to jump ahead and say, hey, let's get right to the point. What do I have to do to be saved? Peter's saying, first, you need to understand what God did to save you. Then we'll get to that other question. It's very important then that we understand who Jesus is, his identity. Otherwise, we may not have the full appreciation, not only of how he can save us, but what we're being saved from. If we reduce the gospel down to a formula, if we reduce the gospel down to a simple act or a step out of context with the rest of it, then we're going to think that the only thing we need to be saved from is to have some fire assurance, fire insurance when we get to the end of time. We're going to try to lock in some afterlife security. You know, things are going pretty great for me, and I think i got a handle on the way I'm living my life right here, but I want to make sure I don't go to hell when I die. I need to take care of that. And while I'm at it, I'm going to go down to the grocery store, pick up a few groceries, and check in with my agent on some other things. That's not what salvation is. It's too simple of a view. And yet, even though we would never say that, I'm concerned that sometimes we treat salvation that way. That it's just about getting to the right place when you die. It's so much more, friends. And, we need to, and we'll understand that if we know who Jesus is. Take a look at these four simple statements from what Peter preached. Preaching the gospel. These are his words. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. This is the stuff that Thomas Jefferson was stripping away from the gospel. Peter says it's vitally important. And it's not just important so that Jesus has kind of a warm-up act to say, hey, listen, I'm going to do some great things. I'm going to draw you in, and then I'm going to really hit you with the important stuff. It's not just special powers that Jesus has so he can prove to everybody that he is who he is, but it's much more than that. He has authority. That's why these things can be done. He has authority over the forces of creation. He has authority over the sin and over the weaknesses and over the the things that, that damage and corrupt this world. And he is able to do these things because God publicly endorsed him. Endorsed him for what? Endorsed him to be king, to be authority, to be sovereign, 
over these things for rule and for lordship. Second thing Peter says, King David knew that God had promised with an oath that one of his own descendants would sit on his throne. Jesus Christ sits on what throne? The throne of David, the king of Israel, the king of God's people, the people who were called out, who were made holy and made separate. Why? For the salvation of the world, so that they could be a shining light to the nations, so that they could be, in it, so that they could be the avenue, the, 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 the way of salvation for the world. God was working through Israel. For the redemption of the entire world. So when God gave them a king, he made sure that that king would lead them in that. Now the throne is occupied. There is a ruler. You see, sometimes we we turn throne into a, um, a nice snappy little metaphor for control. And we, and we often invite Jesus. Jesus, I want you to come and, and sit on the throne of my heart. Help me find that in Scripture, okay? I may be wrong, but I think we're going to have a hard time. Is Jesus on the throne of your life? You know, we often ask that question. Your life doesn't have a throne. Your heart doesn't have a throne. If you live in a monarchy, there's one throne, and you're accountable to it. We are accountable to the throne of God, the same throne that's in heaven, the same throne that was filled by David in the days of Israel, and the one that is now occupied by Jesus Christ. That is the throne of your life, whether you know it or not. But in America, everybody is their own king. Everybody is their own ruler. We're all autonomous. Jesus, I need to let you take over. You need to be my co-pilot. No. He's already the king. You just need to acknowledge it, and it will be so much better. God has already placed Jesus on the throne. What you and I need to recognize is that that authority is in effect. This is the gospel. It is good news. Because all of this self-glorification and this idea that we're in control, that's creating some of the problems that you and I live with, if not all of them. The third thing Peter says is Jesus is exalted. See the royal language? He is at the place of highest honor in heaven, at God's right hand. God exalts. God gives honor. The right hand of God is a place of authority. You see that Peter is saying that the gospel is that God has made Christ king. Sometimes in the way we preach the gospel... We allow Jesus to be king. We allow him to be Lord. I know I've got some wise people here who will back me up. Go to a court of law. Stand before the judge and just say, I think I'll let you judge this case for me, Your Honor. How's that going to go, Ted? <laughs> Ted is advising you not to do that. Um, the, you know, say to any authority that's out there, you know, I think I'll let you be the authority today. Here, I'm going to give you a badge. You can be the policeman in my life. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's nonsense. We respect that there is authority greater than us. And yet, when it comes to Jesus, it's like we're inviting him to our birthday party. Our Valentine. Jesus, will you be my Lord? And, 
And then he goes and writes it down in his diary and says, this is a wonderful day. Benjamin, Benjamin's my disciple today. It's all fiction. But we sometimes live with a reduced gospel that treats it that way. God has exalted Jesus. That happened. It's still the truth. And we come to recognize that. Fourth point. Fourth thing that Jesus says. Let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter says this. And when Peter preaches this, this causes a reaction from the hearers. Now notice the dilemma here. The dilemma here is not that they say, God has made Jesus the perfect sacrifice. Or, oh no, we killed the great moral teacher, or we need a little bit of blood. Because if that was the case, and by the way, where in Peter's proclamation is there a mention of the gospel of be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, or Jesus was just a teacher, or Jesus is a necessary sacrifice? That's not Peter's message. I'm not saying that those things are entirely unbiblical, but I'm saying that was not the way Peter presented it. There may be a part of the gospel here that we have overlooked. Because if any of those common reductions were the absolute, complete picture of the gospel, then there would be no problem on the day of Pentecost. Are you following me? Let me explain. The crowd, if, 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 Peter were preaching, listen, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and he had to be killed to appease God's wrath. If that was all he was saying, then the crowd could have said, well, you know, it's kind of a bad thing that we killed Jesus, but I guess it all works out in the end, doesn't it, because he had to die anyway. Yeah, well, we've been through some bad times, but you're right. We need to move on, and now everything is as it should be. It's a good thing that God's not angry at us anymore. That would be an appropriate response, if that's what Peter was saying. Or... If Peter was trying to say, you know, the best teacher we ever had was here. Then they could have said, you know, he was the best of us. There was no one better. Oh, he had some good teachings. But we killed him. Fools that we are, we killed him. We didn't understand. I think we've all got a lesson to learn from this. Let's all go and do something in his honor and memorialize him. And yet sometimes we want the gospel to work that way. But that's not what happens. What Peter is saying is he's saying the King of Kings was here. The rescuing Messiah, the Savior, the one you've been waiting for, the liberator of Israel, the one who's going to redeem the broken creation, and you killed him, which means you've committed treason against the king. Now do you see why they were upset? Now do you see why they were so convicted? This is what causes their alarm. When you commit treason against the king of heaven, you're not going to find another kingdom where you can hide from that justice. You know, in in ancient times when you had kings, still in countries where you have kings, even in our world where you have sovereign authorities, if you are in trouble with the sovereign authority of one dominion, you can go to another and seek asylum. But if you stay within the dominion of a certain kingdom... Justice is going to come down on you when they find you. Now, here's the thing. What limits are there to the dominion of Jesus Christ, to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? 
There is not a place where Jesus is not Lord. There are places, there are people who will not acknowledge him as Lord, but when God has said he's Lord, no one can overrule that. So there is no place to go outside of the kingdom of heaven to find justice or asylum. But Peter's good news is, you don't go somewhere else. You enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You enter into the kingdom of Christ and you will find salvation there. His response is, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter's not setting up some sort of church ritual here. He's not finishing off a little procedural manual that says, here's what you got to do to recruit church members. He is making a proclamation about the authority of this universe, and he's saying, when you find yourself outside, when you find yourself apart and separate, when you have betrayed the dominion of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you don't go elsewhere, you go to him. And if you will repent and turn to him and turn away from the kingdoms of destruction, turn away from the kingdoms of self, the baptism is in, in his name places you in that kingdom. Now let me say this once again. We can get ahead of ourselves. And we can say, that's right, it's all right there, baptism, being born again. I'm not saying that baptism is not rebirth. Romans 6 will show that. I'm fully well aware of this. John 3 will show that, and other scriptures. I know that. But I ask you, where in this message do you see the language of being born again? It's not there. Because, and again, this is a note. This is a sound of the gospel that we might miss. And what it's doing is, Peter is, has the long view in mind here, and he's saying, when you come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ... You've turned away from other kingdoms. It's about that transitional moment, but you don't leave it there. You move on. And if that's possible, because here's the thing. We use kingdom in a very limited way. We use it to mean church. You need to enter the kingdom. You mean join the church? Yeah, same thing. No, it's not. Not at all. You're leaving one rule and dominion and coming under the rule of the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. You must have a monarch. And here's what this means. It means that since Jesus is reigning as king, much more is possible than going through the old status quo of life. Much more is possible than some security in the afterlife. And if we identify Jesus as king, then we will live in that new possibilities. In all of those new possibilities that come along with the kingdom. But if we identify Jesus through some sort of reduced view, he was just a teacher, he's just a sacrifice, then our discipleship, our way of life, and our churches are going to suffer because we're going to be limited. It's like eating a diet without vital nutrition. It's like, it's like, it's like not having some of the things that you need to exist. This is why the message of Christ as king becomes so important. So now comes that moment where we start talking about baptism, where we start thinking about baptism. And there may be some of you today that want to be baptized. I want you to understand this. 
To be in the kingdom of heaven, you don't come through me. I'm not the one who decides that. And I'm not the one who administers that. The elders of this church are not the ones who decide that, and they do not administer that. They will tell you that. But we, as fellow servants of the king, will be happy to baptize you, to walk with you as you go to Christ and put on his name. You're not baptized in the name of any church. You're not baptized in the name of any person other than the person Jesus Christ. Because only his name has that authority. It's the only name that God has endorsed. So, you know, what you'll see standing up here in just a moment are servants of Jesus Christ who turned away from the things of this world and turned to God. And we've been in a faithful walk in the same direction for a few years. And what we want to do is we want to say, will you enter into that kingdom too? Do you want, do you want to follow the king? Do you want to pledge your allegiance and loyalty and obedience to him? Don't miss out on the joy of being in that kingdom.